0: Thank you hi guys welcome to the Friday reporter podcast the podcast where the PR person me Lisa Camuso Miller interviews reporters about how it is they got into journalism and what it is they're covering in the wide world of media affairs it's a great opportunity for me to have a conversation and for you to learn more about the reporters that you're looking to pitch it's also an opportunity for me to partnership with a great publication and opportunity for PR daily to get the word out about the wonderful things they do in the world of communications, offering us training, offering us networking opportunities, and offering us some tremendous content to help us learn more about how to be better in communications. In fact, coming up November 17th, the Future of Communications conference will be happening virtually. I'd love for you to join us there. In fact, if you use the promo code Friday Reporter, you can get $100 off for your participation. I can't wait to see you there. Well, thanks so much for joining me for another episode of the Friday Reporter Podcast. Today, I'm so lucky to catch my friend, Marianne Levine from Politico, right before the debate and the activity on Capitol Hill gets started. Marianne, thanks so much for being with me this morning.
1: Thanks for having me, Lisa.
0: Marianne, you and I have now known each other for quite some time. You've had some tremendous experience at Politico. Uh, But before we get into that, would you tell me a little bit about how it is you came to be a journalist?
1: Yeah, I'm happy to. My interest in journalism, I think, really began in the middle of college. A lot of kids go to college sort of expecting or with the, under, with the expectation that they are going to go into journalism. And mm-hmm. I feel like I made that decision a little later. Um, my interest initially peaked when I started working at the Stanford Daily. And then eventually, as uh, time got closer to graduation, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. So I ended up applying to a one-year journalism program where I was going to college. And I stayed for an extra year. And I think that's really when I really got into it and realized that this was what I was going to pursue professionally. Mm
0: -hmm. Oh, that's I mean, that is like a a super well known, extraordinary opportunity and great um, experience having gone to that journalism school. And I know at Stanford is just super well regarded. But where did you once you got done with grad school? Did you come right to Washington? Like, how did you get here?
1: So I came to Washington right after finishing school. I was lucky enough to get an internship at the Los Angeles Times and the DC Bureau, which was a crazy experience because I had actually never worked at a newspaper before. And so plunging into Washington, as an intern not knowing anyone not really having a beat uh, was definitely a significant challenge and Mm -hmm. I had very very patient editors who worked with me and helped me develop story ideas and I learned a lot but it was definitely challenging not having a specific beat and especially when you're an intern you know you're not in Washington for very long and so it's definitely it's definitely a learning curve so I was there for the summer of 2014 right after I finished school and then I started applying to jobs, and luckily, I uh, ended up getting a job at Politico uh, right after my internship. It mm-hmm. was r- really within weeks of finishing up the internship, and I was actually about to fly home to California, um, but the day before my flight, I got a call saying, hey, you should probably cancel oh, or good. go back home or, or um, come back here in a week. So, um, so I yeah, I got really lucky. I started in Washington, and I've been here ever since
0: the one thing that stands out to me as as you and i have worked together in in your position there at politico even in the early days is you were always very careful and very thoughtful about cultivating our relationship as a source and a and a resource and that to me I think you realized right from the very start that that was something that was really going to be valuable to you um, here in D.C. because so much of what you do today even is um, is really dependent on how well sourced you are, like how um, how strong your connections are with people inside of the capital, inside of industry um, and inside of um, D.C. Was that something that you picked up in your internship? I mean, that was to me the one thing that really stood out as a very strong trait for you as a journalist?
1: Oh, that's so kind of you. I think that really began when I was in grad school. I, uh, For about a year, I covered East Palo Alto, which is kind of this enclave area of of Palo Alto, the Bay Area, and it's one of the um, lower income areas in that region. Mm -hmm. And I was really interested in covering
0: the city dynamics there and
1: how issues like affordable housing and the influence of the tech industry played in, in that community. And so I ended up when I was in grad school going to a lot of city council meetings and the mayor of East Palo Alto would just come to to campus uh, and talk with me for two hours every weekend or maybe not every weekend but he talks to me often and Mm -hmm. I think that was, I think, where I really learned the importance of source relationships and the need to just show up sometimes, even if you're not necessarily going to get a story. Mm -hmm. But I think going to city council meetings and cultivating relationships with local leaders, as well as um, the mayor in the city, I think really taught me early on that here's a way to get a window into what's going on and to build trust with time and also learn what the dynamics are, even if you're just talking to someone off the record and you're not necessarily looking for a story.
0: Mm-hmm. And and that is exactly how you um, came to our um, relationship in the, you know, source to, to reporter, uh, Scenario and sort of how our friendship has developed because you were good about saying, "Hey, Lisa, I know you may not have a story, you know, coming up today, but tell me what you're hearing, what's going on." And that's Mm -hmm. always been the role that I've played as a as a communications person. Like I always try to be a resource to to writers, and I think you, as a young writer, a lot of the older guys or the more seasoned guys, if you will. they tend to know that, but that to me, like I said, was the one thing that stood out so strongly in your immediate, just jumped on the scene, came to Politico and knew that like you were gonna work that angle. And I think luckily for you, that started so much before um, the pandemic. There have been some, some even more more recent writers that have come on the scene that were starting out their journalism career during the pandemic when that must mm-hmm. have been so difficult um, for them to figure out how to cultivate those connections and make those source, um, you know, sources sort of work and happen for them. So lucky for you, I'm sure. Is that something that you now, as you counsel these young people coming online, like, is, is that one of the things that you tell them to, to work on? Like what kinds of advice do you give? Cause you've been on the scene now for some, for a little bit of time. Um, what do you tell these younger writers that are coming online now?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. When I talk to younger reporters, I think I often say that, A, when you're starting out, to not be picky about your beat, I think that I would not have anticipated covering labor. Um, starting out, right. but I actually it was actually a beat I really enjoyed. And I think that most beats can be really interesting. You just have to learn about where the different conflict points are and where people have different interests and what each side is trying to get. And so I think that's one piece of advice I tell. Anyone who reaches out to me. The other sure. is to take any coffee meeting. I mean, I think some reporters have different philosophies, and obviously, as you get older and have kids, you have less time sometimes to take every meeting or talk mm-hmm. to everyone. And I think you can you get more selective the more experience you get, or some reporters do. But I I think that when I'm talking to Other people starting out, I I usually recommend just talking off the record to sources and always asking for the meeting or always asking to follow up or checking in with people even when you don't really have a story idea or you're just trying to see what's going on. I'm big about um, checking in and emailing or calling or Mm -hmm. talking to senators in the hall, even if I don't need them for a story, which probably annoys a lot of them, I'm sure, Mm -hmm. but it's helpful for me to get a pulse of what's happening. And I think having those off the record conversations, at least initially, is very helpful to get a sense of where things are and how people are thinking and, um, and basically can give you story ideas in terms of how individuals are looking at a specific issue or what's top of mind. Mm -hmm.
0: No. And there's no question about that. And I think that now that you're in the Capitol, it is so much more available to you because you really, um, you have access to people all day long. You're running into people, whether you're getting coffee or you're moving through, you know, uh, whether it's a stakeout or something else that's happening on the hill. Um, but you started, I'm glad you brought up that beat that you started at Politico um, in the labor, covering the labor um, and immigration sort of space. That space for you was like, you really you broke a lot of great stories and you did a lot of great work in that area will you talk to me a little bit about that coverage i know there's one particular story that i have in mind but i'd I'd love (laughs) for you to tell me a little bit about um about that early day because that really you really made your name in that space and there's um anyway i hope you tell me a little bit more about that and some of the the coverage that you're proud of there
1: Yeah, I think starting out um, covering labor, it was just a really interesting beat. And it was coming at a time when the Obama administration, these were about the last two years of the Obama administration, where they were making a lot of regulatory changes. So it was actually a very active beat in terms of trying to break news about what regulations were going to come out related to overtime pay and pensions. And so Mm -hmm. it was an interesting beat because there's a connection to people. There's a connection to business. There's a connection to just how government operates and so I and obviously looking at the labor movement and how it's changed over the last 10 or 15 years, I think all of those are really interesting dynamics to dive into and mm-hmm. one of the reasons I really enjoyed the beat was that it had a um, it had a human element to it um, and I think that, when you're covering labor, there's there's I think everyone works, right? So there's all there's always a there's a connection, there's an understanding, no matter what side of the issue you're on, about how about how this impacts people Mm -hmm. and impacts people's daily lives. And so that was one thing about the beat I really enjoyed. And it was an interesting intersection between covering the Hill and agencies, particularly the Labor Department. Um, Through covering that beat, I learned that it's sometimes helpful to play different entities off of each other, like asking business groups about the Hill and asking the Hill about business groups or what the Labor Department's doing or what the White House is doing. And so learning kind of how the different inflection points work in Washington was something really helpful for me on that beat. And it also helped that it wasn't hyper competitive and it wasn't a beat that everyone was covering, like covering Congress right now. I enjoy it a lot, but it is very, very competitive. And you Mm -hmm. know that any story that you're chasing, there's about five other people (laughs) also chasing it (laughs) and maybe, maybe 10 other people. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's, um, so it's one of those things where I actually really enjoyed parts of that beat because you're not just writing the same story that everyone else is writing and there's more opportunities to dig in and come up with something that's different than what a lot of other reporters in Washington are writing about. Mm-hmm. So those are some of the reasons I really enjoyed um, covering labor. And I also learned to do some investigative work on the beat. And mm-hmm. I think that that was also a very valuable experience for me going into journalism and understanding what where I felt my strengths and weaknesses were as a reporter. And right. so I learned a lot um, and I'm grateful that I had that opportunity starting out.
0: No question. And I'm, and that's a great point because really it is, it's a beat that is, I'm sure that you got to know your, your competition very well. Cause it is not um, not quite as crowded of a space as it is on, um, on the Hill. Cause there's so many other writers and so many other publications that are up there competing for that. Um, you know, that, that, Exclusive or that that early story or that breaking news, but um, the one story that sticks out to me is the one that you covered. There was a, a nominee for labor secretary, and he obviously had a little bit of a, a background that was not necessarily one that would be um, ideal for a cabinet member, right? And mm-hmm. so you really, you really were on the front end of that. That you know, really sort of cutting edge coverage that caused him then to withdraw his nomination. Is that right?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of factors definitely contributed to him withdrawing. And I Mm -hmm. think people have different opinions about what contributed to his withdrawal. Um, Andy Puzzer was President Trump's first nominee for labor secretary before he nominated Alex Acosta. Mm -hmm. And what, what I think one of probably the most high stakes story I've done in my career was looking into his background. And so when the Trump administration announced his nomination, there were all these articles that surfaced really, particularly from this one publication in St. Louis, it was an alternative weekly, and it brought up the fact that he had faced domestic abuse allegations from mm-hmm. his ex-wife. And so from that experience or from just reading the, the clips, my editor said, Hey, why don't you just get the court documents and see if there's anything here. Mm. And we didn't really, I was, we didn't really think that there would be anything. Um, but basically I requested the court documents and we were lucky that we requested them the day we did because they were immediately sealed the next day. Oh wow! But I got we got the court documents in the mail. I looked through them. And as as I was reading the court documents, the allegations seemed pretty serious and more serious than perhaps is indicated in some of the news articles. So mm-hmm. I started calling around to people who knew the family and people who knew um, Andy Puzzler's former wife and a lot of a couple of them did, you know, said that there was nothing more to add to the story. But then one person, I I did what I do with a lot of sources. Um, at the end of the call, I say, "Well, is there anything else I should be keeping in mind?" Mm-hmm. And the source at the end of the call said, "Well, you should know that uh, someone called me the other day and mentioned that, Andy A. ex-wife went on the Oprah Winfrey Show to talk about the domestic abuse allegations." And so when I heard that, I thought, "Wow, that seems that's so specific, but also sounds." very out there and Mm -hmm. seemed very and it was just very surprising to me and so I asked this person can you put me in touch with the lady who called you mm-hmm. and so after badgering the source um <laughs> again i think this is something that probably comes through in this interview but i tend to badger people a lot in a polite way but i do bother people a fair amount and uh, and after asking this person hey can you put me in touch with the lady who contacted you i finally got her number a couple weeks later and she confirmed to me that she had seen tape of this Oprah episode where Mm -hmm. Annie Pazzer's ex-wife appeared in disguise and the whole thing was just very I never covered anything like it before and basically through a series of I guess luck or for lack of a better word, but just tr- talking to everyone I could and trying to figure out where um, the story was going. We eventually did confirm that she did in fact appear on the episode. And so we published our first story in January of 2017. And then a couple, and then that sent us off on a week's long search for this for this episode tape which sent me to los angeles um to, at ucla which had a partial oprah winfrey collection i mean i had no idea that um the oprah winfrey show was so hard <laughs> to find um, no archive kidding. episodes uh, yeah. which you wouldn't expect in the era of youtube no. but i flew out to la and then didn't find it i was contacting former oprah producers and then eventually what kind of cracked the the story open was the fact that members on the Hill were actually watching this episode secretly and private. And so from that, we figured out which episode she'd actually gone on. And I realized I had spoken to the producer, one of the producers who was on that episode and I got back in touch with them. And I, that producer mentioned that there was another woman on the episode who actually lived in this area and he, he basically said maybe this woman has a copy of the tape no so kidding. i got in touch with her and she said i don't have a copy of the tape but my sister does and so how we eventually found the episode was traveling out to ellicott city maryland to pick up this videotape and taking it back and we eventually published the tape and he he withdrew his nomination the next day so it was definitely a crazy whirlwind I think there were a lot of other factors that contributed to this he also had came under fire for having an undocumented worker working for him and I think that there was there were other issues with his nomination that were coming to the forefront as well Mm -hmm. but that was the role we played in terms of in terms of reporting on his background Amazing. and looking into his looking into his past,
0: just I mean, and just such a good exa- great story, by the way, just such a good story. But also, you know, the fact that that it does take a ton of work to identify these, um, to pull the threads and identify these little nuggets, and then go find them. And the fact that you were, you know, picking up videotape. I mean. The Oprah Winfrey Show was on for years and years, so I guess really long before there was YouTube. So maybe that's why it's not necessarily widely available, but that story is just tremendous and certainly has led you to this rocket ship to where you are today now covering the Senate. Um, Before I get to that, though, I want to ask you a minute about, because so much of what the brand of Politico is is these tremendous uh, newsletters that you guys produce. And for Mm -hmm. a while after your time working on the labor side, you actually produced what I think is one of the, well, it's the most to me, the most read amongst PR and, and, um, business types that pay attention to Washington. And that's called the Mm -hmm. Politico influence. You were involved Mm -hmm. in that process for a while. Luckily that news. So what, for those listeners who maybe don't know about the timeline, I'm, um, lucky enough to know many of the people that write those newsletters and their, their, their sleep schedule is a little less than ideal. I mean, up very early catching all the news in the morning and then digesting it and sort of putting it together into these sharp, thoughtful newsletters that then are sent out to subscribers. But the influence is actually delivered a little bit later in the day. So maybe you had a little better schedule, but can you tell me for just a minute about, give me a window into sort of how that, how that newsletter was done when you were when you were at that part of the, uh, publication.
1: Yeah, I think any any reporter who works on a newsletter will tell you that it is a challenge and yeah. it's definitely tricky balancing reporting stories versus reporting information for the newsletter and Mm -hmm. the lobbying beat especially um, can be a very tricky beat to cover and uh, but it it attracts a lot of interesting people and there's a lot of it's a great way to get a window into the hill and into the administration because you're kind of taking this outside looking in approach to um, whatever issue of the day is going on so the way most of our days would work I was really lucky to work with Dia Meyer Mm -hmm. who was a co-author on Politico Influence and taught me a lot, but how we would usually approach that newsletter was, A, either looking at, is there an interesting hire that was coming that we knew about that we had an exclusive on, or looking. And one thing that was really helpful for us was going through the Senate database and looking at the latest lobbying files sure. and getting a sense of okay, what are people, what are companies paying money for people to lobby on? And that gave us a window of what the different interests were and what the big push what's from the business community on a lot of different areas. So for example, I felt like under the Trump administration, everyone was lobbying on tariffs. And so every single so many of the lobbying filings that we were seeing were were about the Trump administration tariffs because a lot of business organizations were really worried about that. Sure. So it gave us a window into how that all how that all worked and where concerns were. So and what the top issues were on the hill. So I think that, that so that's usually how we would start our mornings is looking Mm -hmm. through lobbying files and getting an understanding of what was going on. And I think for us, for me at least, I would often try to see, try to connect whatever we were doing with trying to find that nexus between the hill and the, and what people on K Street were trying to push for, what they were worried about or concerned about. And I think that um, we would usually start with getting, with, with also reaching out to other um to sometimes firms or sometimes other organizations trying to see what they're paying attention to what their focus was for the week and exactly. trying to try trying to link what the hill angle was with where lobbyists work because often there's pretty big intersection that whatever is happening on the hill lobbies are paying a lot of attention to that mm-hmm. and um and are trying to advocate for different priorities policy changes all that so i think for uh, for me at least how i approached it was trying to see, see what the big issue was that was in the news like that the hill was focused on and then to t- try to take the rubbing angle on that and looking at okay well what are people doing about this? How worried are people? Where is their attention going? And approaching the beat from that perspective.
0: It informs K Street all day long. It is a tremendous resource. I mean, obviously, Theo is uh, super well regarded and was very um, instrumental in that uh, publication. But you had a piece in that role, making sure that that's just the smart, uh, thoughtful, like it's erected it a lot of conversations on K street mm-hmm. every single day. It still does. Um, and Politico continues to drive that with their great and fantastic newsletters that all of us are sort of paying attention to. You make mm-hmm. a good point though. So those newsletters are coming, but then you're also reporting the news, which now you're in the Senate, you're following the Senate every day. I cannot even imagine girl, every day must be groundhog day. Like every day is going to be the big day. <laughs> and every day is another day full of like, just, constant back and forth and negotiations and just it is a hard job and I respect the heck out of the work that you do every day because it is just, um, it really is it's, a, it's, a, it's in a tremendous beat and the Senate works differently than the House does. Um, how's it going? Like give me a little picture of how it is today. I mean what is it that you're expecting um, over the course of the next couple weeks?
1: I think it's I'm expecting a lot of long nights
0: Mm -hmm. and
1: and maybe some weekend work as we're going ahead in the coming weeks. I mean, it's the one thing I'll say is the beat is very fun. I'm never Mm -hmm. bored. I'm never looking at my watch, counting down the hours. (laughs) I doubt it. (laughs) There's no time. Um, But it is, I I do, I I really do enjoy the beat. It's very fun. And it's fun to feel like you're in the middle of whatever any big story is. So Mm -hmm. that part I really enjoy. The next couple weeks are going to be, It's so hard to predict. I mean, we're today, we're expecting this vote on suspending the debt ceiling, which we know is going to fail. And I think we're really no one really knows how the story plays out. And and we're looking for us today. Our big question for Democrats now is, what are you guys going to do next? You know that Senate Republicans are about to block this vote. And I think once they actually do block the vote, we're hoping to get a better sense of what the game plan is that Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is thinking on how they're going to suspend the debt ceiling. And so I think that that's really going to be our focus today because we really don't have a great sense of what plan b is and there's this is that coming at a time where there's a lot of uncertainty generally about what the democrats want to do and are trying to do and as we all know this is really the legislative year before the midterms pick up next year so looking at how this all plays out for us it's really unclear and we cover this every day and we talk to these people every day and it's very i think there's a lot of uncertainty so i think you go in each day with Sort of knowing how your day is going to go, but also being open to changing course and open to to being flexible with what your priorities are Mm -hmm. for that day. So it's definitely, I think just keeping an open mind about where things are going to go, where things are headed, especially in the next coming weeks, is going to be really key.
0: Girl, I am I feel that on the PR side, too. I will tell you that (laughs) because everything we do on the public affairs side really sort of is is in reaction to or in anticipation of mm-hmm. what the Senate's going to do. So, so many clients right now are just sort of also sort of sitting and waiting and like, like- I've written more plans for what it looks like over the next six weeks and what it's going to look like in January of next year, because here we are, we're in planning mode, you know, with budgets and everything else that's coming and there's so much uncertainty and there's so much sort of waiting to see what the next, what's going to happen. So, um, Mm -hmm. just, just know we're hanging on every word and we're waiting for, (laughs) for everything you bring us. Cause girl, we're waiting for, waiting for some movement as well. Um, I'll I'll turn I'll turn your question back on you and that is is there anything else that I should be asking you about Marianne Levine today in our conversation?
1: I'm trying to think. I don't I don't think so. I feel like you covered a lot of what I what I do. I'm happy to talk more, but I think that you nailed all the questions I in mean, terms of asking me about my background and um, how I do my job. Um, but yeah, I don't know if I have anything else to add, but I appreciate the question.
0: <laughs> I only put it back on you because you brought it up. And it certainly is. It's a <laughs> question. And I ask it because it's a question that really does sometimes when I do media training, I try to coach people about how it is and what it is you want to say in that than that filler. Cause that's an opportunity for you to either make news or reemphasize the point you want to make anyway. So mm-hmm. you didn't fall for the trick girl. Um, but, <laughs> but so as we get to the end of our 30 minutes and thank you so much for carving out some time for me, tell me, is there anyone, um, that you've worked with anyone that you would love to hear, uh, for a future episode of the podcast?
1: So my colleague Sarah Ferris covers the House for Politico, and I think that she is a great reporter. I I think that she would offer an interesting perspective on on the House because she's been there about the same time amount of time that I have covered the Senate. That would be great. And and I think that she would offer a different view. I um I. I think that the two chambers can be quite different. The Senate sometimes (laughs) prides itself on that, Um, but I'm not sure how valid that is, but they but the chambers are different. And I think that the experience of covering the Senate can be very different from covering the House just because of how different the institutions are.
0: Oh, no. Well, with with less Senate less members, maybe less uh, agitation, less drama. I don't know if that's right or not. But there are differences because I worked on the house side. Um, It'd be great to have Sarah. And so I'll tell her that you recommended her. Marianne, thank you so much for being with me today.
1: Yeah, thank you for
0: having me. Thanks again for joining me for another episode of the Friday Reporter Podcast, a podcast in partnership with PR Daily, a resource for communicators like myself and you who are listening in. Join me on November 17th for the Future of Communications Conference, a conference that will allow us opportunities to plan for our next year and talk about what it is we're going to look forward to for the future of communications. Find me there at prdaily.com and join me for the conference. And if you register, be sure to use Friday Reporter as a code to get $100 off. Thanks. Talk to you next week. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America.